Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we're happy to have Bill Beasley on the show. We'll be talking about his new book, Mexican National Identity, Memory, Innuendo, and Popular Culture. It's just appeared from the University of Arizona Press. I found Bill's book very interesting, and I found my conversation with Bill to be equally interesting. Um, I confess that I know nothing about Mexican history, at least I didn't before I read Bill's excellent book. I'm sure that all of you know a lot more about it than I do, or did, I should say. Um, And I'm sorry for the ignorance of all my questions, but I think it's a pretty good interview. I think you'll enjoy listening to it. And as an added bonus, I would counsel you to pay close attention to the end where Bill's Labrador Retriever, I don't know if it's a retriever, but Bill's lab makes an unexpected appearance. Anyway, here's the interview. Hi, Bill. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? How are you? I'm very well. I'm fine. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. How are you? You are in um, Arizona. That is correct? Yes. It is hot there, I imagine. It's about 110 today. Only 110. It feels like it's about 110 here in Iowa, (laughs) but it's very soupy here. You know, I mean, we don't have the dry heat like you guys have. That's what a friend of mine used to say. It's not the heat, it's the stupidity. Um, right. Yeah. So I just to tell our audience that today we're very happy to have Bill Beasley on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Mexican National Identity, Memory, Innuendo, and Popular Culture, which I, I found fascinating, as I told Bill in the pre-interview, primarily Thank because I, I know almost nothing about Mexican history. I, that's some in substance of what I know I read in his book. I suppose that's the failure of my graduate school or undergraduate college to teach me anything about Mexican history. You would think it'd be the first thing you'd learn, you know, I, I don't know, but uh, I, I didn't. So, Bill, why don't you begin by telling us, or should I say the audience, a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in Mexican history. Could you do that for us? Sure. Um, I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, pretty much grew up in Denver, Colorado, just before I graduated from high school. My parents moved to greater L.A., mm-hmm. so I graduated from an, uh, an L.A. County high school, mm-hmm. high school and uh, went to college in California. And somewhere along the line, after trying botany and English <laughs> and succession of different, different majors, um, I finally got around to taking a basic U.S. history course, and it was amazing because the person who taught the course, when we got to the frontier, read Frederick Jackson Turner, Mm -hmm. read some quotations, and I was just amazed. It was like poetry. Mm -hmm. And so I rushed out and bought a collection of Turner's essays. Mm -hmm and instantly became a Turnerian. Mm-hmm. And 
also decided I wanted to be a frontier historian. Is that right? Yes, and that that eventually led me to the University of Nebraska mm-hmm. to study frontier history. Mm-hmm. Well, that would be a good and place to do it. So I was very interested in land dis- uh, land distribution and land disposition, the Homestead Act, mm-hmm. those kinds of things, and did that for a couple of years until I got to the point where it was clear I was going to have to master computers to do what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And at the time, that meant uh, learning Fortran <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and learning how to type uh, on an IBM uh, um, computer card yep. machine. Well... That was not what I went to graduate school to do. Uh And during the same time, I'd been taking Latin American history, which fascinated me as well. And Mike Meyer, um, Michael C. Meyer, who recently died, but was in his first job and was a very dynamic instructor at Nebraska, and I caught the fever from him. Mm -hmm. I like to tell people the final decision came down to where would I like to spend my summers doing research, Mm -hmm. Topeka or Lincoln, Mm -hmm. or Mexico City. Yeah, yeah, that's not hard. Yeah, I wish somebody would have talked, I wish I would have had the same thought, because I ended up in Moscow. I don't know what I I was thinking. I, I... yeah, I mean, I have these friends who are like Italian historians. I get to Italy, or Mexico is great, and I end up in the middle of Russia. I don't, it's very bad. Wow. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, other than I'm not very smart. But anyway, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, well, no, I just, <laughs> then once I became a Mexican historian, um, it was a question of what I was going to do my dissertation on, and um, Meyer steered me toward Chihuahua mm-hmm. and the revolution there, and so I started out as a Mexican revolutionary historian of the state of Chihuahua. Mm-hmm. I like to tell people that I looked at exactly the same material that Carlos Fuentes looked at oh, really? in yeah. Chihuahua, uh-huh. and with my imagination, it became a dissertation and monograph, and with Carlos Fuentes' imagination, it became the old Ringo, a monster uh, popular book and later movie. Uh-huh. So I think it says something about either my my different kind of imagination mm-hmm. or the training I got in Nebraska, mm-hmm. I'm not sure which. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I became a, a Mexican historian. So no, there's no there's no Mexican heritage or something in your background. There's nothing, nothing at all. Uh, I, the reason I ask this question, it's it's somewhat. Um, I get asked this question all the time about Russian stuff, and I you know, I grew up in Kansas, and I, I don't I never met a Russian person. I never heard anyone speak Russian. I heard, I couldn't even find it on a map. I grew up in Wichita, and then my people were from north of Wichita in Chase County, and and we didn't we were the farthest thing from Russia. We didn't know anything about Russia, and I but I got to college, and I met a guy 
you know, who I'm still oh. in close contact with, an amazing fellow, and Dan Kaiser's his name. I'm still in close contact with him. And yeah, so I mean, that's, he just, uh, he was very exciting listening to him talk about it. And I said, you know, he said, you should take a language. I said, what language? You take Russian. I said, okay, I'll take Russian. So well, it was really like that with me. I didn't have any, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, my dad grew up an orphan, but the story he always told, and we have some, some of my brothers and sisters have verified that, that. Um, his mother was Mexican, mm-hmm. but, you know, didn't have any influence on me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that I'm aware of, maybe genetically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I just find these things are quite odd, especially if you talk to, I don't know if it's true of people in South and Central America, but um, it's true of Europeans in general when you, they, they, you say, well, you know, I studied this or that country, they, they, they somehow intuit that you, you must be of that heritage. And I, it's, it's uh, always interesting to me to point out to them that in America that often isn't the case. Um, no, so. not at all. I think if there had been laptops, I'd probably still be doing The Frontier. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. We um, Actually, the first interview in this show was with Malcolm Rohrbaugh, who's a frontier historian here at Iowa. He just retired, so... We did a little frontier history, and we have a couple of people in the department that do it. Um, so your first book was on the Mexican Revolution itself? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then after that, what did um, you work on? Uh, the title was Insurgent Governor of Ram Gonzalez and the mm-hmm. Mexican Revolution in Chihuahua. Mm-hmm. And then yes, after that, what did you... Are, excuse me? I'm sorry, and then after that, what did you work on? Well, <laughs> I took a kind of twisted course. I was interested in doing another kind of book on Mexico, and I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be. So I decided just to start reading and ended up reading um, foreign travelers' accounts of 19th century Mexico. Really? Yeah. And I think I've now read all of them. Really? I keep yeah. saying really because I wrote a book about foreign travelers' accounts. I don't know. I didn't oh, find really? this. No, I did. I wrote a book about 16th and 17th century foreign travelers' accounts to Russia. Yeah, I, and I read them all, too. I wrote the bibliography. <laughs> well, we'll have, to, we'll have to trade some yeah. information. <laughs> we will. No, I spent uh, about five or six years with these foreign travelers' accounts. And, yeah, no, I thought they were great sources. I mean, particularly in the Russian case, because the Russians at that time were fundamentally illiterate, and the only people that wrote anything about them <laughs> were foreigners. But, uh, but in the Mexican case, what did you find out? Well, what I, the way I did it was to take notes on everything I found interesting. Uh-huh. And then take a look at what Mexicans had said about the same topic. Oh, cool. And, of course, taking the position that things they took for granted, Mexicans, that is, that Mexicans yeah. took for granted, would be things that foreigners would identify That's as caught up with. Just what I said. All right. <laughs> so we're both really pseudo-anthropologists. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. I don't know if I convinced any of my colleagues of that, but <laughs> did you, I hope you had better luck than I did. Because Well, I, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, So while I was doing that, this was a time when history departments were declining and history was declining uh-huh. um, in enrollments. And I was teaching at North Carolina State at the time. Mm-hmm. So a friend of mine and I, uh, Joe Hobbs, who worked on Eisenhower, 
he and I decided to offer a course in the history of American sport mm -hmm. that would look at all the themes U.S. historians look at, uh -huh. and but do it through sport. Uh -huh. And that class, I don't know, we had 350 every I time bet. we taught it. Yeah. It was hugely successful, yeah. and that led me to write a series of articles on American sports uh -huh. and to write a history of the Wolf Pack, uh -huh. the history of intercollegiate athletics at NC State, uh -huh. while I was reading foreign travelers' accounts. Oh, really? I see. Uh -huh. That was fun. And But eventually, reading foreign travelers, I kept reading about Judas Burnings. Yeah. And I, and I couldn't find anything about them. No anthropologists, no historians, no one had written anything about this practice of Judas burning uh -huh. on Holy Saturday. Uh -huh. So I decided that's what I would do, yeah. is write a book about Judas burning. I mean, I think that's fascinating, and I, and I think our, we should probably, I, I wouldn't mind going a little bit deeper into this, because I, I made exactly the same assumption that you made, and that was that the foreigners were seeing things that the Russians didn't. And uh, I complete that. I think my approach was completely vindicated because most of what we know about, or not most, but much of what we know about 16th and 17th century Russian folk practices comes from these travelers' accounts, and there were hundreds of them. Uh, I cataloged many, many, and uh, you know, again, I mean, if if you want to do historical anthropology, I think these are your best sources because there's so many things in them that, that again, that, that they're just never noted in Russian sources. Many, many things. I found marriage practices. I found folk wedding practices, all kinds of things about um, dress. You know, little odd things like women painting their teeth black. You know, what, I don't know what it's about. I, I mean, the, the, I, I read dozens and hundreds of them, and, and I found so many things that weren't corroborated in, in Russian sources. And my colleagues would all say, well, it's not corroborated in Russian source, so it can't be true. And I'm like, well, that doesn't, wait, that doesn't follow at all. Just because you find it uncomfortable that it says right. that, I'm sorry, but there it is. And we'd have to really assume that these people are just making stuff up, and maybe they are, but, you know, yeah, I thought... No, uh, I, you know, I think that's what makes it really interesting. And, and if they are making it up, well, I don't think they're making it up. I think foreign travelers sometimes repeated yeah. what people told them which is uh, an excellent index to folklore, yeah. to folk practices. Yeah, no, um, I agree. And I found that, too. I found that a lot of times they would transcribe uh, stories that they were told. If they knew a Slavic language, they would transcribe these stories. And, and again, these are, in some cases, I wrote a little article about it. It's absolutely unique information. We did, it's the only place we have it are in these sources, um, are these foreigners who are just very interested in this kind of thing. And I, you know, it's a tremendous source, but in, at least in my discipline, you know, the foreigners looked at Russia and they often talked about it in disparaging terms. Um, I mean, you kind of have to bleed some of that away, but I think many of my colleagues just didn't like the fact that, that they were talking about Russia in disparaging terms. But much of what they said, I think, was, was tremendously accurate. And I'm sure you found the same was the case. With Absolutely. And I think that... Uh one of the most interesting foreign travelers to Mexico in the 19th century, Fanny Calderon de la Barca, is widely used by Mexicans themselves for exactly 
that reason. Right. She was able to pick up on things that other people were not writing about. Well, it's not, you know, I mean, Americans should know this, too, because, you know, the greatest book ever written by an American was written by a French nobleman in the first quarter of the <laughs> 19th century. You can still read that book and find yourself in it, you know. I mean, I, I, in fact, I was reading it quite recently, and I look at it, and I'm just like, oh, well, he, he already knew this about us, you know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, so. those are wonderful sources. Yeah, no, yeah. I agree, and I, I, I'd really fight an uphill battle with my colleagues about them, but um, I don't know if I convinced them or not, but yeah, that's neither here nor there. So what led you, I was doing some research on you, and uh, at, at one place on the web, and you can never trust what you read on the web, I'll just tell listeners that right now, at one point it says that you're the foremost expert on Mexican puppetry in the world. Is that true? Uh, I think I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> That's very refreshing. Uh, That's so great. And it, and it could be true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so do you collect Mexican? One of the reasons I ask is my grandmother uh, collected dolls. She collected dolls and puppets her whole life. Do you collect them? Oh, I would like to, but um, no, because museums like the San Antonio Museum of Art with its Rockefeller wing right. and museums in Mexico collect those kinds of things, and they're not priced at a level where yeah. professors of history. No, yeah, I know just what you mean because the same. You know, after my grandmother died, they sold her doll collection. I was amazed about what it went for. It was really oh, she had nineteenth sure. century, eighteenth, nineteenth century doll collection. It was really quite remarkable. But anyway, this is kind of a segue, a rather ham-handed segue into the topic of your book, which, you know, it's called Mexican National Identity, but a lot of it is about puppets. I mean, and I think you should try to make that connection for our listeners. Okay. <laughs> well, like here, here was the idea. Uh, I wanted to write a book about how Mexicans developed a sense of national identity after independence in 1821. And I thought I would do a century from 1821 till the, revolu- till the revolution overthrew the dictatorship in 1911. Mm-hmm. So that gave me a nice period of time. And I wanted to look at popular sources rather than official accounts of how national identity was created. Mm -hmm. So I started out with the idea of, first of all, I would look at festivals, particularly Independence Day celebrations, and the ephemeral character surrounding those. In Mm -hmm. other words... What kind of floats did they build to put in parades? What kind of songs did they sing? What kind of dances did they dance? Mm-hmm. That was the idea. So it's going to be the popular side of Independence Day celebration. Mm-hmm. Then I wanted to do something like uh, folk art, some kind of popular artistic expression. Mm-hmm. And I thought what I would do is use... Um, Pulque mugs. Pulque is a popular 19th century Mexican drink. Mm-hmm. It's fermented cactus juice. Mm-hmm. People drank it instead of water. Mm-hmm. And the mugs all had uh, images on them mm-hmm. in bars. Mm-hmm. And as you suggested, I thought, wow, this would be a great collection. You would, yeah. Well, the museums had already (laughs) got to that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and I I wanted to look around for something else. So I ended up 
um, looking at uh, table games mm-hmm. that um, were played primarily by kids at home, but they were also these games were also used at Saint Day celebrations mm-hmm. and carnivals and fairs, and so I looked at those stumbled into them actually mm-hmm. and thought well this is a great this will be a great thing so I'll analyze these and talk about socialization mm-hmm. based on that and then I was still looking around for something that represented everyday ordinary attitudes about the nation about citizenship questions like that and Someone suggested that I take a look at almanacs, mm-hmm. which were quite common. Mm-hmm. And so I, I looked at almanacs and found them crammed with all kinds of information, as you suggested about the Internet, mm-hmm. not always reliable yeah. information, but always fun stuff to read. Yeah. So at that point, I thought I had what I wanted. But because of the widespread interest in Benedict Anderson's book, Imagine Communities, Mm -hmm. um, and I read that, thought about it, and like a lot of other people, had some questions about its reliance on literacy Mm -hmm. for the creation of this Imagine Community. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to find something, some kind of performative activity, some mm-hmm. kind of performance. And I thought that would probably be plays or circuses or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I began looking around for something to do. I heard this rumor that there was a puppetry museum mm-hmm. in a small town in Mexico. So I took a trip to the museum to see the puppets, take some pictures. And the day I got there, a family was delivering their archive. Mm-hmm. So I believe absolutely in serendipity, good mm-hmm. luck, or dumb luck, as Kurt Vonnegut would say. Uh-huh. And so I instantly decided I was going to do puppets, uh-huh. itinerant puppet theater, and use that family archive. Wow. That's incredible. Which I did. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> and since I really couldn't find anybody else who was studying puppetry, I decided I must be the world's greatest actor. I think that you are. <laughs> yeah, no. I... I mentioned that to someone, and uh, there was an exhibition of puppets in Mexico City, and so I went to see it was introduced on TV. Mm-hmm as the world's leading expert on puppetry. There's the confirmation, television and the Internet. I will put that on Wikipedia. I'll start a Wikipedia entry for you, and you'll be the world's (laughs) foremost expert on Mexican puppetry. No, but it is a kind of serious point, and it's something I've thought about a lot, and I thought about after I read Anderson's book, which is much cited and very interesting, and uh, one of the basic theses of is that um, with the coming of print and then, a couple centuries later, mass literacy, that um, the elite uh, 
spread the message that uh, people were Germans and Russians and Mexicans and what have you, that people read their way into nationality. Um, I, being a Russian historian, I always thought that this thesis didn't really fit Russia very well because nobody could read. Uh, so they must have gotten their nationality some other way, and I often wondered what that was. And, you know, I think that your book is, uh, is terrific in the sense that it confirms something that I thought about in terms of the way I learned American nationality, and it certainly wasn't reading, because when I was a kid, we didn't do much of that. Uh, we did salute the flag a lot, though, <laughs> yeah, and say the Pledge of Allegiance. But I don't ever—I don't know if I've even read the Pledge of Allegiance today. I don't think I've ever seen the words. You know, it's just an oral tradition of the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, the Pledge of Allegiance I, of the flag. Yeah. I'm not sure it's written down. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it is either. I don't think it is either. I think it's absolutely yeah. So in that sense, I thought your book was very refreshing because the way I learned, you know, that I was an American was I, when I and when I did start to read, it's sort of funny you mentioned because I was reading comic books and my favorite comic book. It's, I mentioned this because I was just in a comic book store here in Iowa City. Uh, was a comic book called Sergeant Rock. I don't know if you ever yeah. read Sergeant yeah. Rock. But yeah, Sergeant Rock was always defeating the Germans. That's pretty much all he did. Uh, and uh, he and his tough guys were sort of in their tank running around Germany or wherever they happened to be and, and were defeating Nazis. And that's kind of how I learned about being an American. Americans were the people who defeated Nazis, that kind of thing. So, you know, I thought that in that sense it was very... Uh, it was, very, it was very refreshing corrective, I think, to this notion that, that literacy was really this sort of magic that gave people nationality. But maybe you could actually take us through the ways in which Mexicans in the 19th century... Uh, by the way, what did Mexicans call themselves in the 19th century? Mexicans. They called themselves Mexicans. Now, yeah. but you say at some point in the book that when people say Mex said Mexico, Mexico, they meant Mexico City. Right. Well, they called themselves Mexicans, but if, if you ask about nationality... But if you ask where they were from, they would say their hometown. Yeah. It's much more common to say that they were from San Luis Potosi or yeah. Oaxaca or Guadalajara. Or yeah, I, like I see that's what you mean. But anyway, I'm sorry, I interrupted my own question, which was maybe you could take us through the ways in which that they learned uh, that they were Mexican. And I'm particularly interested in this commercial angle that you, you found, because, I, again, I think that's a rich vein. So why don't you just go ahead and talk about that a little bit. Okay, so um, let me start out by saying this. I, I think that what was crucial after independence is that people who lived in Mexico wanted to know something about who they were as a nationality and who and what their country was. And that curiosity um, led them to be interested in what people had to say. And one of the groups who had something to say about that topic were the traveling puppet theater groups. And they recognized this curiosity and took advantage of it by presenting a series of little short plays that showed Mexican history, mm -hmm. that showed the diversity of Mexico's regions, the mm -hmm. diversity of Mexico's cultural groups, mm -hmm. the diversity of Mexico's music, and all of these things then created an image of this mosaic of Mexican people that came to be called Mexican national identity. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I found this fascinating in a whole series of, of different ways. 
first of all, um, I thought it was fascinating that these puppeteers who were members of the petite bourgeoisie were presenting this not in any kind of didactic way. They were just trying to make a living. Mm-hmm. And that's true of a whole series of other groups that I deal with in the book, that they're petite bourgeoisie who are trying to make a living, not huge profits, but they're just trying to get by. And so I become the spokesman in this book for petite bourgeoisie mm-hmm. history, which you know, something I never intended to, mm-hmm. to do. But mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting angle um, historiographically to try and pursue. Mm-hmm. I also think it's fascinating that the puppeteers had to learn something about their audience to find out what they were curious about. And their plays responded to audience curiosity mm-hmm. and, and to, I'm sure, some listeners or some readers of the book will say, well, yes, okay, so there was this audience, but that didn't represent the whole community. Mm-hmm. The puppet, this puppet family called the Rosette Aranda always made it a point to give a free show for the poor mm-hmm. or to give several free shows if it were a bigger town. Mm-hmm. And then they gave private performances to those who wanted to have one mm-hmm. at their hacienda or ranch. So mm-hmm. their performances were available to the whole community and often reached the community. Mm-hmm. I also found it interesting that this their performances touched the vein and the way I demonstrate that is that after the puppeteers had been in a town, I went to some of the surrounding communities to see if there had been a multiplier effect, if someone had then tried to do a a variant of the play Mm -hmm. in a smaller town Mm -hmm. by looking at licenses Mm -hmm. that had been issued. And Mm -hmm. I was able to demonstrate that. Mm -hmm. So there were kind of ripples going out through other parts of Mexico from the performances of this theater group. Mm-hmm. Um, here I should say that this family was in operation from 1832, and their last performance was in 1952. That's incredible. Oh, a different family. That's amazing. But it was the same family, same people through the 19th century. It's amazing. Um, the Would family you- was... Go ahead. I was going to say, would you have been able to write the, the, the history in the way that you did without this archive? Are there other sources that, that you said that the, the, that um, there are foreign travelers' accounts and things? Did they mention puppet shows? or uh, Was this widely known, this tradition? Sure. Yeah, but it was one of those things that um, finding this archive pulled together a whole lot of scraps of information that I had seen in other places. I see. Mm-hmm. And that I hadn't really recognized. This mm-hmm. gave it a real focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so a typical performance would be they would come out and they would do um, a calendar of holidays. This would just be a sketch of 12 performances and they would show a holiday 
for each month from different parts of the country. Uh-huh. And Independence Day, Virgin Guadalupe Day, um, Constitution Day, things like that, Christmas. And when they did that, people would see how other Mexicans celebrated these holidays, the dances that they danced, uh-huh. and at first the company traveled only with sheet music and some instruments, so they would hire local musicians uh-huh. who would play the music for this performance. Uh-huh. Later they started traveling with a, with a band. Uh-huh. Um, so this created a kind of what I called an oral sense of Mexican national identity as well. People recognized the, their folk tunes, recognized their mm-hmm. musical heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be followed by a series of other, other sketches showing life in Mexico City, mm-hmm. bullfights in Puebla, um, cockfights in Guadalajara. Mm-hmm that were not part of the regular calendar, but were ordinary activities Mm -hmm. of the people. Mm -hmm. So this is the kind of thing they would do. And the the program would be adjusted according to the town they were in. Mm Mm-hmm. I f- yeah, I found that part particularly interesting, and you make a point of it. I mean, this isn't like publishing a book where you simply throw it out into an audience and then something happens. These were adjusted at every moment because they right. got immediate response. You didn't do, you know, it's a little bit like comedians. If the joke falls flat, you don't tell it again. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, so that it's being tested all the time. So you can be pretty sure that what you see performed again and again in a mature show is what people wanted. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you and can't say that, that about any book. No book works no. like that. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> My books are perfect, but I don't... <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So are mine. Yeah. So, um, so I, I found this fascinating, and as I looked at the puppet performances, I discovered that a couple of the puppets were known all over the country. Mm-hmm. By that, I mean I'd see references to them in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Not as puppets, but they would just say, like this character, mm-hmm. Vale Coyote is a famous one. Mm-hmm. And so then I wanted to look particularly at a couple of these puppets and try and find out how they resonated with the general population. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up doing, a, a, in the book, a long analysis of the Independence Day speech given by the puppet whose name was Incarnacion, but was known as Vale Coyote, mm-hmm. as that was his nickname. And the speech is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, I say it's hilarious. Um, that's, you'll have to take that on faith mm-hmm. because the speech is done in garbled Spanish mm-hmm. and um, it took forever to get it translated. Mm-hmm. I worked on it. I'd, every time I met somebody, I'd ask them to 
how they would translate it mm-hmm. and trying to figure out what he had to say. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I like best about his speech is he says that, well, he's just a, a, a country farmer and he's not used to speaking, but he's going to do his best. And then in the, the way he gives his speech, it's funny if you know proper Spanish. Mm-hmm. That was the point. Sure, yeah. That, so it had the effect of when people saw the performance, it helped standardize Spanish in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. they would say, "Oh, yeah, that's funny." Because that's it's interesting. Wrong. Yeah, that's interesting. I, ha- I have to ask this question though, uh, as somebody that used to sit in front of the television a lot when I was young, um, and has since thrown his television out. But Saturday morning cartoons, Wiley Coyote. Wiley, is, is, is you know who Wiley Coyote is, as in sure. Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. So is, yeah. is, is this uh, d- d- does this an echo of Wiley Coyote? No. No. Uh-uh. No, because Coyote is. This is a um, an ethnic term. Yeah. And so it means someone of mixed ethnic heritage. Uh-huh. And so what we have here is somebody lower class, mixed ethnic heritage, uh-huh. no education. That's that's who he is. I see. Okay, good enough. I see. Another character I was interested in, and I really enjoyed your reading of it, actually, was, um, and I don't know if it was a famous... I don't recall from the book whether it was a famous puppet, but it was um, El Negrito. Right. I thought, that, that, I thought that was particularly fascinating. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. El Negrito was a famous puppet in the 19th century, known to everyone. And he, uh, as I say in my introduction, at least according to one puppet play, ends up saving Mexico from the French when yes. they invade in the 1860s. Uh-huh. And in that performance, it's it's really a quite remarkable uh, puppet performance that I'd love to see. He was a, a black puppet, and as an Afro-Mexican, comes from, uh, is typical of Afro-Mexicans from the state of Veracruz. Mm-hmm. And his dress and his speech indicates that's where he's from. Mm-hmm. And he's constantly in plays where he's dealing with an upper-class, stuck-up, aristocratic person by the name of Don Folias. Mm-hmm. And in a whole series of those plays, the play ends when El Negrito announces to Don Folias that the wife of Don Folias has cuckolded at him. <laughs> yes. And so, now, the reason the audience loved this was not only seeing this aristocrat get his comeuppance, but immediately when it happened, the Don Folias puppet's neck would extend about three or four times uh-huh. as long as normal, uh-huh. and then the nose would stick out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that would make El Negrito so happy that he would dance the special El Negrito dance. Yeah. Which, of course, I've never seen, but yeah. imagine that it was something like um, Mambo or something yeah. like that with the Afro-Cuban influence. Mm-hmm. So 
um, in talking about that play and trying to figure it out, that domestic imbroglio, trying to figure it out, I thought, you know, what's really interesting about this is there's no evidence at all that she actually cuckolded him at all. Mm-hmm. Maybe Aldegrito was just having a great time. Yeah, right. Having him on, as they say, right? Yeah, exactly. Having exactly. him on. Why is uh, why would the um, sort of one of the archetypical Mexican uh, puppets of the 19th century, indeed responsible for saving Mexico from the dreaded um, French, why would he be black? Well, I think it is their whole series of of reasons that I tried to... Yeah, I'm, prompt, I'm, pro- yeah, I'm prompting you to repeat them for our audience because I like them. But, <laughs> but number one, the number, the number one thing is that Veracruz, the state of Veracruz and the city of Veracruz <laughs> have a long-standing tradition as the most liberal part of Mexico. Uh-huh. They also opposed the French uh, with a great deal of bravery and opposed the arrival of Maximilian and in Carlotta, the French-imposed yeah. emperor, who were there. Um, now, in the in the, the population of Veracruz, there's a su- substantial number of Afro-Mexicans, and about the time of independence, about 1820, the largest number of freed blacks, um, in percentage terms of the population at least, in all the Americas lived in Veracruz. Mm, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's a very strong mm-hmm. um, tradition with a great deal of influence. Mm-hmm. The Afro-Mexican influence is very strong mm-hmm. in Veracruz in a whole variety of ways. I think that the other fun thing about the play where El Negrito Nic- defeats the French is their echoes there of the Haitian Revolution, mm-hmm. of the Haitian Rebellion that exactly. overthrew the French, and yeah. so it's it's reminding them that uh, you know they lost their empire one time in the New World, and they were going to lose it again mm-hmm. because of a black man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I found that very I, I found that very interesting, and also was there I believe you mentioned that there was a sense in which they were saying, well. El Negrito is our hero, and in the United States, right across the border, El Negrito is a slave. Yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely. And I found it especially interesting that during this period we're talking about in the 19th century, Uncle Tom's Cabin was widely performed in Mexico, yeah, both is. as a play and as a puppet performance. That is fascinating. Well. Yeah, that that is that is quite fascinating. I I think it is. Yeah. Um, which completely surprised me. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that that sounds like a good book topic itself. The receptions of of, of Uncle Tom's Cabin in in, in uh, Mexico. I, I would be very fascinated to read that. Um, so you deal with things other than puppets. You deal with a lot of celebrations. When does the Mexican celeb- uh, celebratory calendar become fixed, or, or when does it gel? Well. Uh, um, I guess I would have to say that certainly not until mid-19th century. Mm-hmm. Probably it's firmly set in place when Porfirio Diaz establishes his, his regime in 1876, and that regime remained in place 
until 1911. Mm -hmm. The issue was what day to celebrate for independence. Was it the day Father Hidalgo called for independence, the night of September 1516, which is the date now in place, or was it the day independence was achieved in 1821, that's September 26th, mm -hmm. or was it the day that Santana defeated a Spanish invasion when they tried to reclaim Mexico. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. those dates, all of those dates were celebrated, but most mm -hmm. people from the very beginning uh, supported September 15th, the mm -hmm. night of September 15th, mm -hmm. um, which now, according to, to tradition, is 11 o'clock really? Central Standard Time. <laughs> that right? Yes. That's the, that's the time when the Mexican president will step out on the balcony of the National Palace and ring the bell that Father Hidalgo rung uh -huh. um, and call for independence. Uh-huh, uh-huh, I see, I see. But the ceremonial calendar itself is primarily, um, in addition to the national celebrations such as that one, it was basically full of uh, ecclesiastical holidays. If I, right. Yes, exactly. Yeah, every every town has a has a saint, uh -huh. and so there's the celebration of the community saint. Uh -huh. um, then there's the big holidays of uh, Christmas, uh, Handel Mass, Corpus Christi, mm -hmm. Holy Week mm -hmm. would be the four biggest ones. Well, when did these become associated with Mexican nationality, and how did that happen? Um, I think that it happened as as part of the acceptance of Catholicism as a way to organize everyday life. Mm -hmm. Mexicans, the saying in Mexico is that 60% of the Mexican population is Catholic, 95% of the Mexican population is Guadalupana. Mm -hmm. That is, they yeah. believe in the Virgin of Guadalupe. Mm -hmm. And so even people who are not, not churchgoers are still involved with practical or vernacular uh, local Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so these holidays form a part of everyday life in the same way Christmas forms a part of much of life in the United States mm -hmm. or the life of many people in the United States, mm -hmm. whether they're Christians or whether they believe in our church-going Christians or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking the, the reason I'm sort of pursuing this line of questioning is that uh, I, sure. I'm, I'm wondering how national, because one of the things your book argues that I find very uh, suggestive is that nationalism sort of bubbles up from below and it's largely sold to people. And, and, and I'm, again, I'm very sympathetic to that line, but I'm kind of wondering how, in addition to the puppet theaters and the, um, the, the, the almanacs and the calendars and the board games, if there are other ways in which nationality, Mexican nationality, was sold to people that you could mention. Well, I, I hope it, I didn't say that it was completely sold. Oh, no, 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 you didn't. No, that's I, mine. That's uh, mine. Yeah, no, uh, no. I mean, I think part of the idea is that there's a curiosity and an interest, and then associated with that curiosity and interest, there are a number of uh, ephemeral or performative 
activities yeah. that they're willing to pay for. Yes, that's much so They're, they're yeah. tied together. <laughs> yeah, that's much su- more subtle than sold to them. Yeah, I, I see your point exactly. Yeah, but all so, I mean is that, is that yeah, you know, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there are a whole series of things. Corpus Christi in Mexico, the celebration of Corpus Christi, is a Mexican holiday, and it has to do with the way Mexicans conceive of national identity. So what? here's what one of the ephemeral parts of this. For mass on Corpus Christi, kids, parents go out and buy their kids. If they're girls, they buy them Indian braids. Uh-huh. And if they bo- they're boys, they buy them an Indian headdress. Really? Yeah. That's the kids wear those to mass. Uh-huh. And then afterwards, in front of the church, there are a whole series of little um, photography opportunities yeah. now. Mm-hmm. But before, they would just go into these little stable-like things and play around with animals uh, and other representations of rural Mexico. Mm-hmm. Today, they have their picture taken with burrows and with um, an indigenous kitchen. That sort of thing. Is this thought to, is, um, is there, I'm trying to think of a similar sort of thing in the United States, and I'm, uh, I would be horrified at the response. Is, is there any reaction to this in the Mexican community? I mean, is there any reaction against it? Uh, you know, because it sounds. No. No? I'm trying to think of American kids dressing up like Indians and then going, and I just, uh, yeah, I could, it'd be hard to imagine, wouldn't it? Yeah. It's kind of, <laughs> yeah. I guess it's kind of like. Somebody leading a pony through your neighborhood in Iowa City and yeah. taking a picture of the kids on the pony. Yeah, well, that it would be completely benign, yes. But but dressing up with you know like uh, Native yeah. Americans, that would never fly. Yeah, that would be that would be bad. People would dislike that. But I can see well, how it does. Out here, people come through Quadra around neighborhoods with a pony or a burro, and you can put on a sombrero. Right. Now, do, do, do Mexicans think of that as, uh, and did they in the 19th century as, because you mentioned the puppets were dressed like typical Mexicans. Is there a typical Mexican style of dress? I'm speaking as someone who holds nothing but American stereotypes. No, I mean, there's, there's a variety of folk um, costumes. And so emerging in the 19th century was the charro, that is the kind of Mexican cowboy um, as the typical yeah. Mexican yeah. Because I know that in the 19th century, that, that, that um, this is a bit of an exaggeration, but in the 19th century, in Eastern Europe at least, the, uh, the native, so-called native costumes of various Russian regions were um, transferred into the hands of people with rather theatrical imaginations. <laughs> <laughs> and they invented these things, which then became native Russian dress. But they weren't native Russian dress at all, but they were very elaborate. Did a similar sort of thing happen in Mexico? Um, really, that took place during the revolution. Oh, it did? Uh-huh, as part of the revolution after 1910. And there have been some incredible studies where, well, I, I was just in Oaxaca where they established... They, in, the 19, in 1930, they wanted to recreate um, the indigenous culture of the state of Oaxaca. Mm-hmm. So they decided there were seven cultures, seven regions, seven valleys, and then they had groups from these different regions 
pick what their costume was going to be and yes. what their dance was going to be. <laughs> yeah. When they, when they got to the last fun, they didn't have a dance for them, so they made one up. Yeah, right. <laughs> and this is great. They made up uh, the pineapple dance. The pineapple dance. There are no pineapples there. Yeah, right. Well, that's... But yeah. <laughs> you can see them every summer. Yeah. Come it, yeah. to Oaxaca City and dance the pineapple, the pineapple dance, dance. Each one carrying a pineapple. Yeah, I see just what you mean. <laughs> that's Yeah, that's that's very funny. You will have a dance. You will have a dance. So that's much more of a, of a 20th century, 1920s, 30s uh, project of the revolution. Yeah. I can I can see just what you mean. That's interesting. But a thing like the sombrero, which Americans associate with Mexican identity, was that also kind of an invention of the 19th century? No, no, actually. Well, it's interesting. It's kind of settling on which sombrero is going to be the typical Mexican. I don't know. I, I can't tell one from the other. So ignorant am I. So maybe you well, can. They're all, well, you know, the ones that we see in on mariachi singers mm-hmm. are from the state of Jalisco. Uh-huh. That's. That's now been accepted as the national sombrero. Uh-huh. There are smaller ones. There are ones with different size brims, um, and those are typical of different regions. Uh-huh. Uh, what's important about this is that, well, we've been talking about the popular popular ideas of Mexican nationalism. Mm-hmm. The government of Porfirio Diaz was trying to eliminate many of these. Oh, really? And so, for example, the Porfirian government had laws against um, sombreros uh-huh. and taxed people or fined people for coming into town wearing a sombrero. <laughs> Sorry to laugh. That's the sombrero fine is pretty funny. <laughs> it is funny. Yeah. yeah, revolutionary governments, but in general, you know, it's kind of an odd thing. Sombrero <laughs> so, fine, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the fine was based on the size of the brim. Exactly. So How could it be otherwise? Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, sure. No, it's like, yeah, no, well, there, I can imagine similar sort of regulations um, in the United States against certain sort of attire. But let me ask you this question. It's kind of a little, we're, we're, we're closing on the end here, but I wanted to ask you a question that may seem kind of outrageous, particularly to our uh neighbors and friends to the north. I mean, it seems to me the Mexicans actually created a national identity and the Canadians didn't. <laughs> you really want me to call that yeah. up? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, honestly, it, it does. I mean, it seems like it's a strong sense of Mexican identity, of national identity. And, I, you know, a lot of Canadian people are very nice and everything, but they don't have a strong sense of national identity. Can, is there, can you speculate on why that might be the case? I'm sure I'm going to get hate mail from Canadians now. But. Yeah, you are going to get I'm hate sorry, mail. I didn't mean anything. I think, uh, I think that, um, let me answer it this way. Since NAFTA, there have been some regular studies on whether or not there's been a convergence of values and national ideas uh-huh. as a result of NAFTA. And those studies show that there has been a convergence, but it, it's been a convergence between Mexican and Canadian attitudes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, and of course, yeah. they're in opposition largely to what they see as things they don't want to be like in the United States. Yeah, exactly. We always get the butt into that stick. Um, right. No, I see that exactly. What do you, um, let me ask another question. What do you, um, 
and this is a little bit off topic, but I, I find it historically interesting. We we talked the uh, a couple of weeks ago with a fellow who wrote a book um, about uh, conquest in world history, and and what he specifically meant was the way in which um, populations will supplant one another. His name is David Day, and the name of the book is Conquest. And one of the things he pointed out was that uh, the increase in the Mexican population in the southwestern states could eventually result in them becoming de facto parts of Mexico again. What do, um, this will be many, many years hence, but what do Mexicans think about uh, the Mexican-American War of the 19th century, and what do they think about Arizona, New Mexico, and that area of Texas. Do, do they? How do they conceive of it? Um, it was clearly a disaster for Mexico, and it was brought about by decisions made in the United States. It was a war of aggression, yeah. a war for territorial yeah. aggrandizement, and mm-hmm. there's no other way to look at it. Right. There's. Um, then it depends when it comes to Arizona and New Mexico on whether or not the individual Mexican, um, his, his or her opinion about Santana, who sold, basically if you look at a map, Santana sold everything south of I-10 mm-hmm. in Arizona, New Mexico, mm-hmm. um, to the United States for a railroad route, mm-hmm. and then it became a highway as well. Mm-hmm. So that additional chunk... Um, People hold Santana responsible for if they don't like him, or they say the United States pressured Santana into selling it if they do like him. Mm-hmm. But there's still, and rightfully so, a great deal of resentment mm-hmm. about that war. Yeah, I have um, to, you know, I have to confess that, you know, even as somebody that's supposed to know these things, when I, uh, I um, did some research on the Mexican-American War, I didn't know anything about it, and uh, you know, it really was. Uh, it was one of the United States' sort of most successful imperial ploys. <laughs> Maybe the only really successful imperial ploy, oh, I right. think, yeah, that we ever... Yeah, and I can understand how, 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 you know, historically speaking, Mexicans might feel a little bit hard done, you know, concerning... Well, I, I certainly agree that with your guest that a series of things are taking place in the United States that uh, uh, suggest that while I don't think Arizona and New Mexico are ever going to be part of the Mexican Union, they certainly are becoming Mexican, um, they're becoming more Mexicanized in major ways. Yeah, yeah. No, it is quite remarkable percentage of the population that are, that are, um, you know, that either speak Spanish as first language or, you know, were born in Mexico or th- this kind of thing. I mean, I know that even here in Iowa, you know, we have a, a quite a few Mexican immigrants and, and um, uh, you know, who work in various capacities. And I think most Iowans are pretty glad to see them up here because the northern states are um, not exactly uh, demographically thriving. So, you know, we've always existed right. on people coming in and then going out. And so I think we're pretty happy to see them. And, uh but I, I, yeah, I find it very, very. I find the whole thing extraordinarily interesting um, because it, it, it's a, it's you know something very big is happening, and it's it's unfolding quite slowly, but it's but it's still happening, and I and I feel kind of blessed to be able to sort of see it go on. Um, I don't, I'm not sure I would feel the same way if I uh, 
um, if I lived in Arizona or New Mexico where tempers are a little bit hotter about the entire issue. Um, but it, it is it is extraordinarily interesting, and I think people should know a lot more about, about Mexico than they do. I mean, I, I know I think I should know more about it than I do. I was very happy to see that, you know, just the other day, you probably saw this in the news, Barack Obama said that he thought that, you know, American school children should learn Spanish, and I think that's probably right. Uh, you know, if you go to Germany, every German school child learns English. Right. And, well, uh, I think that um, that's going to happen. Yeah, I hope it does. I really, I really, honestly hope it does. Yeah, that's good. Um, I, I would, I would favor that. Well, Bill, thanks very much. You know, we've taken up a ton of your time today, and we really appreciate it. Let me ask you our traditional closing question, and that is, what are you working on now, other than your tan? <laughs> well, actually, I stay in the air conditioning. Yeah, who wouldn't? Yeah, me but, too. Uh, what I'm trying to do right now is take a look at the way popular music serves as a mnemonic for revolutionary popular uh, views, uh -huh. revolutionary popular programs. Uh -huh. I'm trying to make this connection, and so. What I'm doing is doing a lot of reading on music and how it serves as a mnemonic and also trying to learn a lot about the Mexican popular music industry, yeah. both the oral tradition of music and recorded music, radio music, sheet music. Uh -huh. All of those kinds of things. I think it's a terrific topic, you know, because a lot of people will say, especially in Russia, you know, I go to Russia and Russians will say, well, we, we memorize poetry and they can all recite Pushkin, tons of Pushkin, more Pushkin than you shake a stick at. And Americans can't recite any poetry, well, generally. But, you know, I, I would always tell them that, you know, I have the lyrics of... of oh, I, I have... Is that a dog? Sorry, that was my that was my lab. Oh, that's okay. Don't worry about it. I was going to say, you know, I um I can recite, you know, hundreds of the the uh, the lyrics to hundreds of pop songs. <laughs> I know exactly. the, I, I know them by art. <laughs> hundreds. So this, this is why I'm trying to do this is because I all the time we spent memorizing or singing along to yeah. the lyrics of rock and roll. Right. Stairway to Heaven, I can recite it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Bill, thanks very much. We've had Bill Beasley on the show today, and his new book is Mexican National Identity, Memory, Innuendo, and Popular Culture. Bill, thanks very much. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Bill Beasley about his new book, Mexican National Identity, Memory, Innuendo, and Popular Culture. It's just appeared from the University of Arizona Press. My name is Marshall Poe, and I'm the host of New Books in History. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.